Welcome to the Investment Clinic Live, your monthly 30-minute online chat with an investor. And now your host, Brindusa Burroughs. Welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to this edition of the Investment Clinic Live. We're back after the holidays and very, very excited to be hosting today Eva Yazari. She is the co-founder and CEO of Beyond Capital Fund. My name is Brinduza Boros, and with my team, I'm here online at theinvestmentclinic.com. Let's move on. Just a quick word about the Investment Clinic. Investment Clinic is a project of the Grand Up Project Company. What we have seen working with a lot of impact entrepreneurs around the world is that accessing finance is one of the biggest difficulty that impact entrepreneurs face. And so this project offers live online webinars, investor lectures that you may also see on uh, theinvestmentclinic.com. We also offer on-demand expert consultations if you need help in reviewing your teasers, your financial modeling, validating your revenue models or business models if you need to assess your pitch decks and so on, write to us and we will help you in your preparation. The Ground Up Project is a deal sourcing platform for sustainability. We look for companies that are looking for under 20 million US dollars in investment. There will be very soon a possibility for intermediaries and investors to share or share some of their investments with, with others. And we work on the basis of the Value Compass, which is a proprietary tool that helps entrepreneurs self-assess how well they're doing in their investment preparation. And if you'd like to know more, tune in to groundupproject.net. Now to move on to our guest today, Eva, hello and welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, happy to be here. You have 14 years of experience working in venture investment. Today are the co-founder and CEO of Beyond Capital Fund, but you also have corporate boards role, observer roles, and a serious background in what many people would call mainstream investment, private equity, investment banking. Tell us a little bit about how you shifted and you know why Beyond Capital Fund and maybe just a few words about what the fund does today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you again for the opportunity. Hi, everybody. Uh, great to be speaking to you all. So basically, my my backstory and pathway into this space was, as as you mentioned, through kind of a more traditional finance route. I gained the hard skills of due diligence and under, understanding how to evaluate investments, um, mostly through working with hedge funds and understanding what they're doing in their portfolios, but also through you know experiences in investment banking and also private equity and my own investing as well. But essentially in 2009, I decided to shift and my co-founder, who's my husband and I, put our heads together and realized that we had a tremendous amount of time, talent, capital, interest, resource in our networks. And we really wanted to draw that in towards something that was sustainable, but business-minded and philanthropic at the same time. And I'll explain what philanthropic means because we have a unique model where we are set up as a nonprofit. And so that's how Beyond Capital was established. We did some market research. I'll get into that, I think, in some of the questions but essentially, we decided to use our same skills from investment and my husband being a corporate restructuring professional in order to uh, improve the lives of people living under the poverty line. 
and establish an engine that could source, screen, analyze, and invest in companies in order to do that. Thank you so much. And can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to focus on impact at the bottom of the pyramid? Yeah, absolutely. So the the kind of anecdote is that we wanted to impact the lives of people living under the poverty line and at the same time kind of based our thesis on a study called The Next 4 Billion about how people who are living at the bottom of the pyramid spend their money, which basically proved to us that people who live on less than $4 a day do have a budget for healthcare and energy access and sanitation and other services that will improve their lives. So I think it's a given that we're all understanding here that people at the bottom of the pyramid lack access to basic needs. And and that's where we've decided to focus our investment activities. And we also see an, an opportunity in addressing these challenges. So we see kind of a market opportunity for a $5 trillion global consumer market of people who are living under the poverty line. So overall, it was really a market-based solution for us, but there are some unique factors of obviously investing in this segment of the market because people have a budget, but they have a relatively small budget for these sorts of goods and services. And so business models need to be built around that budget, whether it's high volume or you know, selling kind of multiple channels or very highly tech enabled, they need to be able to keep their costs low in order to meet the bottom of the pyramid's needs. You know, we you shared and we shared with all participants in today's uh, clinic a bit of background on, on the fund and where you invest and what are some of the sectors. So, you know, people would have seen that you're interested in healthcare, energy access, waste, agri-food and all, all sorts of consumer-focused businesses. What makes you believe that there are investable opportunities in this target? And and I believe the focus for you is East Africa primarily and India today. What makes you believe there are opportunities in this target? Yeah, I mean, so we have a pretty robust pipeline. In, in a year, we review over 200 businesses in India and East Africa, which are target regions. And we ultimately aim to invest in five, and we're hoping to scale that number throughout the next three years. We believe very strongly that there is still a capital gap for seed stage social enterprises. And I know everybody received uh, background information on our work, but just to kind of remind the group, we are a seed funder and that we we maintain fidelity to the seed rounds. And it's important for us to be able to uh, fund companies that don't have other capital around them, and that might be perceived as riskier than they actually are. And then we have evidence from our portfolio that we can invest and return our capital. So we have exited one of our portfolio companies. I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. And we have evidence that from companies where we have not exited, but where we've received offers to exit companies and also a very, I think, respectable book value IRR as well. So overall, I mean, we're looking at many deals on a weekly basis. And so that helps us feel comfortable that there are investable opportunities. And coupled with our return, we're able to feel that this is a strategy that can grow and scale and attract additional capital over time. Thank you for that. And one of the things that we've heard, Eva, from previous guests in the clinic was about 
the importance of the ecosystem and investors working with other investors, not just co-investing around deals, but also working across the, the so to speak, the value chain, right? So the uh, working at different maturity stages of the business and how important it was for entrepreneurs in the impact space to think about their investors ahead of the game. So if you are in the seed stage uh, today in a seed round, you could also think about how you prepare for future stages and what kinds of other investors might be interested in your business later on. So tell us a bit about how you work with other investors in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Just to take a step back, as I mentioned, we have a unique structure, which is that we are set up as a nonprofit, although we act like a VC, venture capital fund. And so that means we have a philanthropic mission as well as financial intention to generate return. So I think it puts us in a very unique position in the ecosystem in order to engage with others. We don't necessarily have you know, the same kind of competitive undertones to our work because we are reliant on later stage capital coming into the businesses that we invest in. So we're typically often the first kind of professional capital. And what we mean by that is we're coming in often after kind of friends and family are giving the company its capital or or its bootstrapped by the founders. And when we go through our due diligence process, we really aim to help the business understand you know, why we're asking the questions that we're asking in order to prepare them not only for you know, our investment, because we, we are obviously going through the process of verifying that doing what they say they're doing, but also to set them up so that they can attract additional capital, either in that round, because we do sometimes go out to our networks and help them raise additional capital in the seed round or in later stage funding rounds where it's you know a bridge round or a series A for us it's it's very important to get to know other investors and be a part of the local ecosystem so for instance my colleague Mahak Malik is on the ground in Nairobi we have a board member based in Bangalore who's very plugged into the social enterprise landscape in India. And we really aim to constantly remain in touch with our co-investor, uh, co-investor relationships and, and follow-on investor relationships. So I think the, the key is really helping our companies get to a place where they can attract perhaps more institutional quality capital. You may notice that I mentioned we are kind of professional capital, but we're not institutional quality. I mean, we're not managing money for pension funds and large organizations. They have other criteria that they need in order to invest, like a track record and uh, probably some some more tangible results and, and certainly to see that the company is moving toward generating profit, if not already doing so. And so our goal is to really help the business get to that point. And after investment, I think, is where the magic really happens. And this is, in my opinion, the fun part. We get to work with company management teams and CEOs and hopefully give them what they need in terms of resources. So one of the the ethoses of Beyond Capital Fund is providing more than money. So we have relationships with law firms, other advisors, financial modeling assistance firms that can really help the businesses in our portfolio think towards these next steps. It's a fairly unique and and flexible model that allows you to achieve all these things. And I think it's fair to say from the entrepreneur side, how important it is to work with someone who understands how they are going to move into the next stages as well. So it just sort of looks forward 
even as they are fairly early stage uh, today. Let's see a few of the questions that participants have sent in advance. We've got a fair amount of entrepreneurs that have sent in questions. There were also a couple of intermediaries and even people representing investor networks. Now, there are a number of questions, and we sort of grouped them in this first one. People wanted to know what kinds of financial returns have you received, but also, or are you expecting, but they're also interested in how you balance impact or how impact impacts the return on investment requirements for investors. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give the sense of what our IRR, financial IRR has been, and and social rather, our our latest exit was in a healthcare business, in fact, an eye care business in India, which gave us a 27% IRR. That's roughly doubling our money at exit. And in doing so, the business reached about 155,000 patients. And I was I was mentioning earlier offline that for us, this business was really a classic example of a market opportunity being seized by an entrepreneur that cared deeply about the social impact. So the founder was a doctor, and he noticed that there was a lack of eye care in his region, which is Assam, relatively remote region of the country. And so he set up chain of, of health clinics and hub hospitals to address diagnosis of vision problems and vision correction and also cataract surgeries. But overall, when we invest, we work with our portfolio companies to really define an impact st- strategy and a theory of change. And that helps us put in place a measurement system and a reporting system that ensures that the impact is not diluted as the business scales. So for us, it's it's very important to tie the social impact into the reporting. And I also would add that we do kind of vet our prospective CEOs and management company, management teams to understand that they are committed to social impact. So it's more of a kind of a character assessment at that point. There's nothing we can do to quantify that. It's very qualitative, but it's important for us to to understand their story, how they came to start this business and what drives them as an entrepreneur so that we can feel comfortable that they will remain focused on the social mission at the same time as the financial return. And uh, and there's a quick add-on question to that. Are you solely focused on locally based entrepreneurs? No. I think our portfolio is probably 50-50 at this point. So we invest in both local entrepreneurs and teams that start perhaps out of business school in the US or Europe and then move to the area in which they are operating their business. So the key is that they are local but it is not necessary that they be from the region. We've seen successful businesses on both sides. Right. You talked a little bit about evaluating and and assessing. There were two or three people actually asking about how you assess tangible impact. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether use, uh, I guess they, you know, whether you use your own tool, whether you use other things, just tell us a bit about how you do that. Absolutely. So on the impact side, we believe that tangible impact can be looked at in two different ways. The first is the depth of lives touched. And then the second is the number of lives touched. And this is, this is a high portfolio level. 
sometimes it's hard to define the depth of life's touch. For example, when you're employing somebody or you're improving their health, there are many different ways that you're impacting their lives that are hard to measure. But we're really trying to balance measuring both both kind of the, the lives touched and the depth of lives touched. But more simply put, for us, our process of understanding what kind of where the impact lies in the business is to draw it out of the business model. So we're for the entrepreneurs online, think about your business model and what you actually do. If you are providing clean sanitation in the slums of Nairobi, we're looking at the act of providing clean sanitation, but also who's employed in the process of getting the getting the 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 waste you know from the toilets themselves to a processing clinic and in the case of the business that I'm actually discussing right that I'm mentioning right now in our portfolio there is also a component where that waste is turned into a byproduct that can be sold and utilized and so there's a there's an environmental impact to that as well so we're really looking at each kind of piece of the business model and parsing out um, social impact metrics as well, which we then couple with, for instance, iris indicators. Sometimes we can't find iris indicators, so we use our own, but each business has its own unique impact framework. And that's how we drill down into what we would define as tangible impact uh, within our portfolio companies. So so for instance, we know that our portfolio is impacting the lives of over 2.4 million people, and that includes 1.7 million women. But underneath that, we are tracking that 400,000 households have received clean energy solutions through a business in India that 50,000 women's health products have been sold to customers in East Africa. And I can go on and on throughout our portfolio, but we're really you know, drilling down into each um, specific company and what they are doing through their business model. This is a question, also the question on impact uh, before they both come from Adam Siegel. He's with a company called NEV. It's a, a clean energy technology developed. So here's a different question from chat. On chat from him, can you discuss your relationship with firms post-investment? And I think you mentioned a little bit of that, but perhaps also to continue on this trend of, of assessing and, and evaluation, a different angle on, on your relationships with them. Yeah, I mean, we really aim to be a partner to our portfolio companies post-investment. I, I actually think that the most important interactions we have are the, the informal ones, meaning conversations, check-ins, uh, even, you know, hey, how's it going on WhatsApp to allow an entrepreneur to poop, to provide uh, feedback that might be less prepared, but equally as important to their business. On the formal side, we do, for instance, set up mentoring relationships, regular check-ins. If they need pro bono legal, for instance, we'll provide them with that and then kind of check in along the way to see how it's going. So we kind of, you know, definitely look to systematize and ensure that our pro bono support is working. I don't believe that once a month for an hour check-in with a mentor is useful unless that is, for instance, Elon Musk, and he is imparting, you know, wisdom from his businesses bullet by bullet in that uh, conversation, which would uh, probably take five minutes instead of an yeah, hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, 
Exactly. <laughs> so I think that it's important when setting up these mentoring relationships or pro bono in kind uh, working relationships that there is a defined need and targets for how the entrepreneur can simply get the most out of it. And so for us, that's very important. Is revenue a requirement for you to invest in a business or do you also invest in pre-revenue businesses? So it depends. We believe that revenue leads to credibility and the sustainability of a business. So obviously we're, we're focused on companies that are moving in that direction, if not already generating revenue. So it also helps us gauge the pulse of the market to understand how much customers are willing to pay for a product or service to understand where their revenue is coming from. So, I mean, I, I think there are rare cases where we're investing in a company that is entirely pre-revenue. And if we are, we're scaling in very small amounts of capital into that business because we don't have enough evidence as to whether their business model is actually working. We're also very focused on unit economics and the unit economic analysis in our due diligence process. And so revenue obviously is an essential input for that analysis as well. So it, it really depends, but I think those three points hopefully will help the group understand that revenue is, is important to us as an investor and why we think about it that way. And what's the best way for an entrepreneur to pitch you? So I think authenticity is number one in this process. Every investor obviously has a different process in terms of how they're pitched to. to. We are very active sourcers, uh, so to speak. So we go out and we have relationships with business plan competitions and fellowship programs and angel networks. And that's where we source our deals from. So we take very little inbound, unvetted inquiries. But I think for an entrepreneur, it's very important that the entrepreneur understand what their target investor is interested in and to deliver that information to them. I mean, at the end of the day, this is sales and thinking about you know, what the person on the other side of the table is looking to understand is a very easy way to, I think, get to a positive outcome in terms of delivering that information to them. But if, I think the key would really be to make sure the business model is well understood and that the entrepreneur is able to preemptively address any potential concerns. If we were to walk out of a pitch or a virtual pitch with five concerns that were not addressed in the pitch, we probably would not move forward with that business. But if there were one or two, and we felt that they were really well thought through, then we would likely move to the next step, obviously, if the company met our investment criteria. And my last point is. For us, it's important that not that we understand the entrepreneur know-it-all, we understand the entrepreneur knows how to think through the key challenges that their business might face because we're investing in people at the end of the day. And uh, we know that sometimes the businesses will change and pivot over time. That's, uh, again, underlines, I think, uh, something that we hear constantly from various investors, just how important it is for entrepreneurs to prepare in their pitch and to understand where the investors coming from. And I think to that, for example, one of the questions that that has come through, which is the last question on the on the screen now, we can immediately say no, right? You don't invest in in microalgae fermentation and uh, BOX packaging and and then there's a regional criteria and so on. 
but the question still remains as to the individual preparation of the of the entrepreneur. And I think it's fair to say that across all the clinics and all the lectures that we've heard so far, the human element really comes first. And and so yes, uh, having a good teaser and yes, having a a good business plan and yes having a good idea of the pitch deck is important but then you know the believing that the entrepreneur will be able to deliver on your investment actually is a key question now we have a couple of minutes left and we have two more questions one of the question this came from the intermediary actually what is the best method to decide on the valuation of a company i love this question so i'll give you kind of the way we do it and then i'll give you also a subjective reasoning. So at our stage, we're typically deciding on the value on a valuation cap because there is no valuation. Like we're doing convertible debt or compulsory convertible debentures, notes that are not tied to an equity valuation. So so the cap is often tied to current revenue streams, future revenue potential, the size of investment that's gone into the core product and factors like that. We've also made a few equity investments, and, and some of those approaches are more common than others. So we've looked at revenue or EBITDA multiples compared to an industry average. We've obviously done DCFs, um, although they're really not that appropriate for seed stage because projections are very, their projections are very kind of unknown in terms of, of how they will play out. There's less of a track record. And in some cases, investors can agree on a valuation window that's tied to future performance metrics. Um, we have a company doing this right now, actually, in their Series A. But on the more subjective side, we do see that, that valuations end up being slightly inflated, which is normal. I mean, I know every, every entrepreneur is very proud of their work and they want obviously to achieve the best valuation possible. But at the same time, at the seed stage, it does concern us and it does give us pause. So in a number of situations, we've really just kind of thought about the market, studied the market, um, tried to understand what other companies are commanding in terms of valuation in, in the you know comps in the, in the region or sector, and agreed on a valuation based on that with the entrepreneur. Because for us, investing in a company whose valuation is too high poses significant risk later on. If they perhaps you know we obviously touch wood this doesn't happen, but it happens that they might raise a down round. And also in terms of how the cap table looks over time. And so we tend to be very technical when it comes to valuation. I'd say our due diligence is definitely rigorous up to the, the deal structuring point. But when we hit the deal structuring point, we do have some kind of deal breakers. And one of them is a valuation that we think is unreasonable. So I think that's just definitely something to keep in mind as, as the entrepreneurs on the line are moving through their capital raises. Thank you for that. And just quickly, a last one that we had received in advance. I know you don't work on MENA region, but the question here was how to raise big investors' interest in uh, green or social entrepreneurs. And this comes from a, a hub of social entrepreneurs. So the idea there is, you know, how can we attract big investors towards hubs and groups of social and green entrepreneurs. And I see a last one on screen here. Do you also work with Francophone Africa? We don't work with Francophone Africa. We decided to focus on these two very large markets and uh, have, have 
hopefully we think become experts over time, especially on the seed stage landscape. It's important for us to remain networked and also thoughtful about the businesses in the ecosystem in which we're investing. Regarding entrepreneurial ecosystems, so we don't invest in MENA, as you mentioned, but there are some similarities between MENA entrepreneurship system and East Africa, which is a region that also typically struggles to secure big funding. We see the biggest barrier is as being the capital gap, which is this seed stage segment where companies are raising roughly between a quarter of a million and a half a million dollars, sometimes less. Therefore, to raise this, these kind of larger investment amounts, entrepreneurs, I think, have to work harder to show that their enterprises do carry or do, excuse me, do not carry as much risk. And so that's kind of the high, my high level thoughts around this question, which I think is, is a valid one. We've also seen a rise in more commercial investors in East Africa, which I think has helped to increase the pace of investing in the region. And of course, you know, keeping kind of a, keeping and building a network and a community of impact investors is important. But I actually think that opening that up a little bit more is really important to funds that perhaps are not stated as impact investors can really help to increase the pace because a number of the funds that we even co-invest with and that we've come to know over the past year and a half in East Africa are not stated as impact investors and see market opportunities in the companies that we're also investing in. Now, we could go into a conversation about how to maintain fidelity to social impact. And obviously, we're thinking about that when co-investing with them. But I do think that they've helped to increase the pace of, of capital and uh, capital deployment in East Africa. So hopefully, that's kind of a tip for the MENA region as well. Hopefully, and hopefully for impact investment as a, as a whole, you know, as the market becomes denser and denser, thanks to your contribution as well, and others who are who are there on the ground and uh, trying to make the more enterprises like this succeed. Thank you so much, Ava, for taking the time to to speak with us today. It was really great to hear from you, and I hope participants today were were able to get answers to their questions. I'd like to say just that if you would like to get in touch with with Eva and the Beyond Capital Fund team, you could email neil at groundupproject.net. We have received your your pitches and sound bites that you have sent through as well in the registration phase. Thank you again for joining us today. And thank you, Eva, and wishing you lots of good luck and successes moving forward. Thank you. Likewise to everybody on the call. Same to you. Same to you all. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. For more insights from impact investors, visit www.theinvestmentclinic.com.